it's not playing my music. I'll do that later on anyway in post-production. It didn't work, Soraya. Anyway, right. welcome to This Week in Mormons, everybody. I'm your host, Jeff Openshaw, founder of the show. It's wonderful to have you here for another terrific week where we will dissect Latter-day Saint news uh, and also, of course, appreciate the general conferences this next weekend. And so we can talk about what we look forward to with that. So I'm excited. The pre-conference show is always a fun one. It's, there's a lot of anticipation around General Conference weekend, and that's a great time. I'm joined this week, of course, by a wonderful friend of the show, author, all-around great person, Soraya Wilson is here. How are you doing? I am so good. Thank you for having me back. It's dynamite to have you back. I just love that you hop in with this. You know, we don't have a lot of like straight-up guests who are sure, like, sure, let me come back and just talk the, talk the news and what else with you. So we're, we're thrilled. And our listeners are thrilled. Do you know how much good feedback I got about your last time here in January? I don't. I'm not I you. I have so. binders, binders full of good feedback, Soraya. It was outstanding. Uh-huh. The pe- okay. That's the people very nice. Out- Thank you. You're, you're welcome. I just wanted, I mean, he's your senator, and I just wanted to make sure that you remember dear Willard Mitt. Um, so what what's new on your end? What's been going on since we last uh, got together? Since you last talked to me, I'm, I'm, I don't know, writing, family, church, I mean, all that kind of good stuff. Pandemic still going on, so... You know, the regular. It is? Even in Utah? Even in Utah. You'd be surprised. I, I probably would not be surprised. Now, uh, if you've... Uh, I believe you hinted at this before. I think we're on the precipice of another book coming out, a new novel. Is this your fir- yes. the first novel since Room Made last year? Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yep. And it comes out what in is go- April. Yeah, it's called The Seat Tell- Filler. Mm-hmm. And since we're on... I'm, I'm, Oh, look, there it is. There it is. There it is. Now, I'm going to feign like I'm intrigued and don't know about it, but you've actually sent me a copy and I've read it. But So I'm just going to act ignorant here, and you can tell us about the seat filler. What is it? What's the seat filler? Uh, the seat filler is just a cute little fun rom-com about um, people who work as seat fillers at award shows, which is a real thing, and I think it's awesome. Um, and I've actually met a woman that become friends with her online where she sat next to John Hamm for Mad Men all night, and he would call her his girlfriend and... You know, but all the rules in the book are real rules. Like they have very strict rules about what you can do. And so anyways, it's about a girl who sits next to her favorite movie star. So, and okay. yeah, yeah, just kind of like in shock and can't speak. And then thinks he's kind of arrogant and takes him down a notch and tells him she doesn't know who he is. And so it just kind of takes off from there. It does take off from there. This one had some twists and turns. I was not expecting, I will say. I uh, having read it. I, I did not know, like you said, the the real rules for seat fillers are like an actual yeah thing. And I don't think that's a big spo- I don't think that's a big yeah, spoiler. It's not. If you but they they tell them things like if you're a seat filler, like you sit down next to the celebrity, you do not engage them in conversation. I guess it's if they talk to you, I guess it's fine. Yeah. If they talk to you, but, it's okay, but you are not allowed to address them. You are neither seen nor heard, like a Milford man. And uh which is hilarious to me. I just I just can imagine being a poor seat filler and you're like, cool, I'm sitting next to super famous person and I'm just going to like pretend this isn't happening and it won't be awkward, but maybe some of the celebrities don't even acknowledge the seat fillers at all and just don't care, which probably. Well, I think some of them probably don't care, but it's actually very hard to find stories about seat fillers because they sign all these NDAs. So people don't really talk yeah. about it. So some of the stuff is, you know, sometimes you have a person like when one lady said Harry Connick Jr. invited her to an after party, you know, 20 years ago. And I'm like, how cool is that? Um, but in an event in the book with Juliet on the floor, that was a real seat filler thing that actually happened to someone where they got stuck. Oh, really? And it was next to Robin Williams. And she said, Robin Williams just kept kicking her because he thought it was so funny. <laughs> so, but you know, that, that makes its way into the book. I thought, yeah, I like taking these real life things and putting them in there. So that's pretty funny. And, and you're, you're sort of your male protagonist, the hunk is 
I want to see you kind of modeled him after um, I'm blanking on his name. Adam, Adam Driver. Adam Driver. Driver. Yeah. Driver. Thank you. Is that that's the case, right? You because you have you had experiences with Adam Driver, did you not? A very short, brief experience, and everybody gets to laugh at me. So you're going to enjoy this story. No, so last year, I mean, I'm a huge Star Wars nerd, like have been my whole life. And after watching the disappointment that it's the Rise of Skywalker, I had questions, and I'm like, did they film one where Ben Solo didn't die? If you haven't seen it yet, I'm spoiling it. Sorry, that's your own fault. Um, I don't know. Maybe you shouldn't see it. It's terrible. Anyways, he dies. And I'm like, there has to be an ending where he didn't die. And I'm like, I need to ask someone this because there's no one you can ask, you know. And then this chair. It's called Kathleen Kennedy. Up, right? Like, I got her my speed doll. This auction came up to meet Adam Driver. And like, knowing what I know now, I would never do this because I didn't really know anything about him. And I, I kind of did some research beforehand and found some people on Twitter. And they're like, he has social anxiety. Like, he doesn't really like crowds or red carpets. And so you might have to do all the talking. I'm like, that's fine. So I took my 12 year old daughter with me and we got to go to the side awards and they have like these bleachers set up along the red carpet. And when the celebrities just, I mean, walking by you, I'm just sitting there and there goes JLo and A-Rod, you know, like it's just this really, you know, surreal experience. Yeah. And some of the, some of them come over, some come over just as a few people. Some people just like Nicole Kidman just walked past everybody, you know, Brad Pitt put on a show. He was the very last celebrity there. He had a great time. He won an award that night. But I am like having childhood idols come through, like Henry Winkler, who I watch as a baby as the Fonz. My mom said before I could speak, I would sit on the floor and put up both my thumbs and go, hey. Um, and he told my daughter she was beautiful, you know, and, and Carrie Elvis. And I'm like, oh, Princess Bride. And Helena Bonham Carter asked me how to spell my name. And she signs an autograph for me. So, I mean, I'm talking to everyone. I'm fine. I'm, I, good luck tonight. Oh, I love your dress. It's going great, right? So... Then it's time for Adam Driver to come over. And it's like this military operation. Like he had several bodyguards. We had several publicists and all these people coming and talking to me. And this is going to happen. And this is going to happen. It was very, very orchestrated. And he comes over and my brain turned off. I cannot describe. He's just this very like imposing person. He's like 6'3", this broad man. And I could not talk. And I made this poor man who hates this kind of interaction do all the talking. The entire thing was a minute and a half long. And I know that because my 12 year old being a 12 year old filmed the entire thing. I mean, he had to ask me, he said, where are you from? And I remember thinking, why does Adam Driver care where I'm from? I mean, of course, now I know he was making small talk, but uh -huh. I literally stood there unable to answer. And he's like, where are you from? I'm like, oh, Utah, you know, and it just was, it was embarrassing. And I like, that's a moment I wish I could go back and redo and, and be charming and, and bubbly and more myself, but it was like, couldn't speak. And he walked away and I'm like, this is a book, you know, girl meets her favorite celebrity at an event like this, can't talk. And it goes from there. So I would say the character has some things in common with Adam Driver. I, I find the fact that he's this actor who was a Marine. I find that kind of juxtaposition fascinating, you know, kind of this guy who would write you poets, but also beat up anybody who looked at you the wrong way. I thought I like, I like that. So He's not exactly like him. And I would say there's probably more Easter eggs for Adam Driver and Star Wars fans than actually it being him. But yeah, he was definitely an inspiration for that book. And now you guys get to hear my Adam Driver story. Hope it wasn't too boring, but yeah. yeah. Now, so but now like I, where it comes from. I have to see, but now I have to see the video. Like I have to see this video. So right. Oh, you have to share yeah, it's on my Instagram. Oh, okay. It's on Instagram. It's on Twitter. You have to go looking for it. Instagram's easier. I have less posts on there. So it's, it's at Soraya Wilson 411. I think I've got them tagged at the top. So Wilson 411. I'm on the interwebs. 
Oh, there you are. There's, there's, a, is that the first one? There's Adam Driver right there. Yeah, there's one that my daughter filmed, and we actually cut out the stuff like where we're from because we didn't want that role. Because I tell them the city name, I didn't want that personal information out there, you know. Uh-huh. And then, uh, there's a professional one. Like the publicist had professional videographers filming him walking over to me, meeting with us, signing autographs for us, speaking to us, you know. So he got something out of it as well. Now, what is this right below it? Did you get to hang out with Ryan Johnson on a Zoom call? Yeah, I sure did. Oh, no big deal. I told you no about big... that. I, okay, well, forgive me. I don't It was a huge yeah. deal and it was amazing. And we could do a whole show about that. But how, okay. He was I would incredible. Like how did that come? To, I, I guess you did, but just please Charity forgive option. me. That's what it was. And you said, yep. <laughs> I just do a call with Ryan Johnson. Now, are yeah, we're since you're, we're, we're digressing a bit, but since you're such a big Star Wars fan, you're diehard, and you did not like The Rise of Skywalker, and you love Ryan Johnson, am I to assume Dude. you think The Last Jedi was the good one? Let me tell you what's going to happen. There was yes. a lot of stuff coming down on that, and I think because we have middle-aged men who have these memories of Star Wars, who have these expectations, who wanted certain things to happen, who wanted a formula to be followed, and a lot of Ryan's choices were deliberate to prevent that formula which mm-hmm. I also find very interesting. But I think what's going to happen is 40 years from now, when we talk about this series, Last Jedi is going to hold the same place in critics' hearts that The Empire Strikes Back does. It's going to be recognized as the easily superior film of the trilogy. And I think people can't see that. And like, my husband didn't like it. So I explained stuff to him. Like He didn't like the Finn Rose interaction. And I'm like, here's their character arcs. Here's why that was important. And I explained to him as a writer. And he's like, oh, yeah, I guess I see that. You know, um, but he's Ryan Johnson's brilliant. And hearing him talk about Star Wars, he has such a love and such an understanding of it that I think, like, sorry, someone like J.J. Abrams does not, who did the first and the third movie in this, in this trilogy. But, you know, Ryan Johnson didn't care about fan service, which I feel like J.J. Abrams bent over backwards. There's a group of fans, they call themselves the Fandom Menace, who <laughs> want, I thought, and they don't see the irony in that at all. But they it's want, like let's name ourselves after the worst prequel, like just yeah, the worst prequel. And then they're calling themselves a menace, and they literally are. But they are the ones who caused Rise of Skywalker to happen because they're like, <laughs> like, like Chewbacca getting his medal. And I'm like, I remember watching it, and I'm like, the freak is this about? I had to go home and look it up, and it's because fans were mad in the original trilogy that Chewbacca didn't get a medal. And I'm like, that is the yeah. stupidest piece of fan service. But the whole movie's like that. The whole movie is nothing but. Fan service after fan service after fan service, trying to appease that fan base who doesn't buy their stuff. And I'm like, you you tried to appease a bunch of middle-aged men who, for what? They didn't like the movie anyways. You know, it, it, it was, it's horrible. It was horribly done. It was horribly written. The whole J.J. Abrams MacGuffin finding something and moving to the next level video game kind of movie is just terrible. So yeah, I love yeah. that guy. I think it's brilliant. It is a great movie. I, I only saw Rise of Skywalker once. In the theater, right, which or, is probably more than like, enough. Like, like, like on principle, and you know, and that was so bad. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it's not like you have any passionate feelings. And someone's about like, this are you going to meet DJ Abrams I think, now? I, I feel like I need to watch the last. I have very passionate feelings. I think that's fair. I mean, Abrams is not talking about it. Abrams is an idea guy. Like he sets, he puts out good ideas, but then he's not famous for his follow through in the end. And right. so when they. I mean, firing Colin Trevorrow might have been the right move as well. Because yes. so, if you want to talk passion, I will go to bat any day and tear apart Jurassic World like with Terrible. reckless abandon. 
Uh, it's a movie I enjoyed when I first saw it in theater, but then the more I sat with it and thought about it, I realized how much I just like despised the film more and yeah. more and more. And and even I mean you know and the sequel that came out after that wasn't great either, but at least had some inspired cinematography. Um, yeah, I hate that stuff. Jurassic World is the absolute worst. And if any Have of you, you want to know his... why, yeah, it's terrible. Well, Have you seen I... the scripts that he wrote for Star Wars? I think I heard about that. Come to think of it, I forgot. Weren't they actually not terrible? Or it was terrible? horrifically bad. There's a line where Hux commits suicide okay. because he had lost the Star War. That's an actual line in the script. Um, in the end, Anakin, not Anakin, Luke, Obi-Wan, and Yoda appear to kill Ben Solo. They kill him. I'm like, that's super in line with what George Lucas had in mind with the Force. That's what he wanted was for ghosts to come back and kill people. I, it was bad. It was all bad. I am loving this. I don't even think we need to talk about Mormon news this week. I just want to like talk <laughs> about, talk about Star Wars. Opinions about Star Wars because I, I yeah, I have thoughts as well. I don't get, yeah. There's, the, yeah. I mean, there's nothing better than Empire Strikes Back. I actually, I did call the Phantom Menace the worst of the prequels, but I actually think Attack of the Clones is the worst of the prequels because the Phantom Menace at least tries to explore some ideas. Yeah, and and the Attack of the Clones is like I think it's the most forgettable Star Wars. Like, well, who whoever gets up and says, I want to watch Attack of the Clones, that's the movie for me. Nobody cares. At least Revenge of the Sith had horrible dialogue, but it was so dark the whole time. You just didn't care. Even though his turn. Happened. And I, it, someone is, who no grew up sense. on the original trilogy. Yeah. It's someone who grew up with the original one. Like, stuff was hard for me. Like, I thought it was going to end with Padme running off, like maybe faking her death. Because Leia has memories of her mother. She was sad. I remember her. I remember my biological mother. And I'm like, wait. She can't die. It completely contradicts. And people try to fan wink that. Oh, they had a moment through the forest. I'm like, oh, crap. That didn't happen. Like, he forgot what he wrote. I don't know. So, yeah, I, I had a lot of problems with those. And I think that's one of the things that was so great about Lucasfilm and about, like, the Clone Wars. I don't know how much you could watch those at all. I've like, heard I should watch them, but I haven't bothered. To. Elevates the sequels. I've, I've heard good. Completely, like, kind of fixes the stuff that's wrong. So, but I've then we get good. into a discussion on should you have to have supplemental things? No. To make to make the original work as it is, like, should you need that? That you should to make it a good movie. So I don't know. I mean, at the same time, like I'm enjoying these Marvel TV shows, even even though they're going to lead into other feature films. I mean, the you know. Mm-hmm. I love the Marvel stuff and WandaVision was great. Falcon and Winter Soldier is great. Those are TV shows. I can get behind it. It's all fine. It's all good. Well, folks, we could talk about this all day probably, but we might as well give you what you came here for, which is the exciting world of Latter-day Saint news. That's right. All kinds of things happening this week. Uh, we can think about conference a little bit. Something big, some small. I'm going to lead off with one of the... Uh, Interesting stories from last week. So a man named James Huntsman, who is the brother of one John Huntsman, former governor of Utah and ambassador to China and Russia under different presidents and uh, attempted governor of Utah once more last fall or last year, but did not win the uh, primary against now Governor Spencer Cox. I think I'm getting all that timeline correct. Anyway, James Huntsman files a lawsuit against the church alleging tithing fraud. Now, Aside from personal feelings about the whole idea of this, I think it does make for interesting law. It makes for an interesting case to examine in terms of, of what you can sue someone for. I mean, simply the idea is he's saying the church fraudulently spent millions of dollars he had spent in tithing meant for charity instead on commercial purposes. And we've talked a lot on this show in the past. Of course, the church has a big portfolio. I mean, it just came out this past week that like apparently the church's Tesla stock went through the roof last year, which helped the portfolio. Sure, the church invests in lots of commercial things, and that's fine. 
But it's really just a question of, like, can you sue the church about that? I mean, on the very form you fill out on tithing, it has this disclaimer at the bottom, even online, when you do it online, when they have the copied version of it, and it says, basically, the, though every effort will be made to use the money for the the designated purpose, if you happen to fill out for more than just tithing, you know, if you do the missionary fund, the temple fund, whatever it might be, very specific things, the church is clear that it reserves the right to use the money as it sees fit. And from that alone, it makes me wonder how you can have a legal case about this. I mean, I know that tithing, fast offerings, all that is just broadly considered a charitable contribution uh, for, for tax purposes. And so if you're alleging fraud, you're simply saying that my funds were not used for anything involving charity. And if they were used for for profit, maybe, but at the end of the day, I don't know. The church doesn't reveal all the books. Obviously we don't know if the church, they don't say they use tithing. They've said very clearly they don't use tithing funds Mm -hmm. for the commercial enterprises the church is engaged in. And so I want to assume that's true. And if that's the case, then even though, then I don't think there's a thread where Mr. Huntsman can prove that his tithing dollars somehow went to help build city Creek for example. Yeah. I, I can't figure out what the thought process was behind this. Um, like you said, the, the disclaimer is very plain and very present wherever you do this and that you have given it over and you don't get to say where it goes. Like we don't get to, the, and maybe that's part of being a millionaire. I was doing this thing reading about charities and about um, Jeff Bezos's ex-wife, Mackenzie Scott, who has donated this, you know, like a billion dollars to these various yeah. charities. And the charity said, what's most amazing about it is that she came to them and said, you do what you want with the money. I don't need any kind of accounts or reports. You, I'm investing in you because I think you're already doing a great job. Go forth. And they, the charity said, this doesn't happen. When millionaires come to us or companies come to us, they say, here are the standards we want you to follow. Here's the, you know, these measurements that you must hit, these milestones you must hit. We want to see all this work. We want to see this and this and this. So they create all this work for the charity so that they can get what they want. So I have to think, is this part of that, that he's this millionaire? And so he thinks he should have a say in how his money is being directed. And so he's doing it because, I don't know, maybe he's trying to embarrass the church and make them, force them to reveal their books and, you know, that they have to do it in a court of law. Or is it just an intention thing? I mean, whatever it is. And I'm, I, I'm like, are you going to do this if you got your money back? Are you going to go pay your taxes on it? But I'm like, I'm sure you took your charitable contributions off your taxes for donating to the church. Um, I don't know. I, I just don't understand this mentality of I get to say where it goes. I mean, you can do that on your own. You can take your millions of dollars and give to whatever charity you want. Nobody's stopping you. You know, we don't, I don't give it to the church because I am expecting that this charitable thing's going to happen with it. I give it to it because I was directed to do this by the Lord, that the money's going to be used best by the people that he called. And I have faith in them. I, I remember, I think it was Gordon B. Hinckley who used to talk about what a what a burden, what a boulder the tithing was on his shoulders, that how responsible he felt for that, for using it properly, for spending it the way that it's meant to be spent. And I, I just think you put men like that in charge and, you know, I'm pretty sure President Uchtdorf doesn't have, you know, a Ferrari in the garage and, you know, three pools out back. Like the money's not taking, being stolen and used for stuff. And I don't know, it's a good thing for them to own these commercial enterprises and make money that they can then use for all the things that we need. And we're not in debt and we don't. And that's why this all started in the first place was the church was in debt for a very long time. And it, I remember it was Woodruff came along and said, we can't be in debt anymore. We have to change things and completely change their fiscal process. So. Yeah. I mean, we learned a lot of the lessons from the past. I mean, if you go as far back as Joseph Smith and the Kirtland Safety Society and yeah. 
everything that went wrong there, we had a pretty spotty record in the early days in terms yeah. of our, our own sovereign wealth in that sense. And so I think it's completely understandable that we are as we are. I would say, I mean, while I, I'm with you, I don't exactly agree with this lawsuit. It does it does get into some of the interesting areas, though, in terms of where the line is for the church, because obviously the church is a tax exempt organization right. as the church. And so the question is, like, are you essentially they're trying to allege, like, are you abusing tax exempt status to continue to go after your huge your hedge funds and everything else that you're working on? Um, and then you're basically just getting out scot free and not paying the equivalent taxes on this and that. And of course, I'm not the expert on the books and I'm not a CPA. And that can be troubling. I mean, when the story dropped a year and a half or so ago about the church's massive investment fund, many people thought that they're like, so like, is tithing money going to this? Are we, are we, we have all this money and we're not paying taxes? Like, are we kind of being, are we trying to abuse our tax exempt status or not? Uh, and that would be of concern to me. I mean, if the church was sort of doing that, I don't think it is. I mean, that's why that sad auditing guy gets up every general conference in April and reads that auditing statement, which just once I want him to come up there and say, all is not well in Zion, brothers and sisters. Everything's wrong. It's falling apart. Bankruptcy. The books, yeah. are, messed, the books are messed up. Someone embezzled something. I'm looking at you, Elder Cook. We know it was, um, that's not going to happen, but uh, it's unfortunate that, people feel the need to uh, have lawsuits about these sorts of things. I, I don't see that there's much basis for it, even though I understand it's, like you said, it's it's pointing fingers and I think it's just trying to draw attention to the church and maybe force the church's hand on finances. As a lay member, I would not mind a peek behind the curtain in that regard. I don't need it to have my faith and be happy as a member of the church. Yeah. But yeah, I would not mind since, because tithing is not mine, right? I mean, it's easy to think of ourselves as shareholders in that sense. Like we're all in this together, but it's different. Like I'm giving up that money that is the Lord's money. It's not my money. So it's not really my say, but I still have the human inclination to want to think that like, Hey, we're all like supporting the church. I would like to know more about that. And I do. And sometimes wish the church would just be more transparent about the books in that sense. I don't think it would be super harmful if they were, but, uh, Oh, James Huntsman, these Huntsmans, they give us trouble, man. I mean, like are any of them even active in the church anymore, Soraya? My goodness. I mean, John's not. James clearly isn't. Who's le- Abby's not. Who knows what she's doing? This is just a this family. My goodness. I don't know. I sometimes think, you know, people always want to be wealthy. And I don't know that that always works out well, you know? I thought, especially like in the church, you can kind of see what it does to people. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, that was fun. What do you have? Sorry. What do we have? So I'll have to bring you in on this because you were such a big advocate for it, but the church is saying they're going to try to preserve the murals in the Manti temple. Um, I went and looked at this artist and I'm going to mispronounce her last name because I don't know how it's pronounced. It's Minerva. Is it Tykert? Tyshirt? Yeah. Tykert. Ty- you know how to say this? Yeah. yeah Tykert. Tykert. She, her family's fascinating. Like I went and looked her up and I'm like, you know, Minerva is such an unusual name and how'd she get named that? And then it's like, oh, cause her, her, I think it's her, she's named after her grandmother. Her grandmother was married to Wild Bill Hickman. And I'm like, that's wrong. Hickok, right? No, it was a Wild Bill Hickman who was oh. 20 years before Hickok, but he was a uh, bodyguard for Brigham Young and Joseph Smith. And he came out and got excommunicated by Brigham Young because he said Young ordered him to assassinate someone and he wouldn't do it. And nine of his 10 wives left him because he got excommunicated. So, anyways, I thought I was reading. I'm like, man, early. It all sounds eerily like they did some wild stuff. It very Porter Rockwellish, and they had this thing where he went fighting the Tippinokish tribe, and there was a chief called Old Elk, and they found him dead. So, 
Well, Bill Hickman cut off his head and brought it back to the fort. I don't know. Interesting stuff. But anyways, she is such a, like a great story. Like another person I want to hang out with in heaven and just talk to her. Like she just sounds like the coolest person. And I, I read, you know, that she got accepted to art schools in Chicago and New York and she got offered a scholarship to London and she turned it down so she could go back to Idaho and get married. Um, had five children. Her husband wasn't a member. He ended up joining the church and they got sealed in the temple. And it was like this profound experience for her that it gave her a lifelong love of temples. And they were such a special place to her. And she's often asked to speak about them. And she went and just loved to paint. And she, she used to paint like on rocks and wood because she couldn't afford paper and pencils when they were first married and stuff. So Anyways, her artwork was gorgeous. She was the first sister ever called an art mission for the church. Um, and she would submit things to the church all the time. She submitted paintings to BYU to pay for tuition for friends and family. And yeah. she just had this really great style. And so she was asked to do the Manti Temple. And she's like, I think George Albert Smith was the prophet at the time. And she's like, I am not going to let him down. And they expected this to take years. She, she did the world room and they expected it to take years. She finished in 23 days. And they, so the artist that she hired, this young man that she hired to work alongside her, um, they had to build a scaffolding on their own. And the pain they did, she was 59 years old and she had was suffering from lead poisoning. So her eyesight was going, she had health issues. And she said, he said every day she would get up and we would pray to the Lord. And she'd say, I need a miracle today, Lord. I need to see, I need my health. I'm going to do this for your glory. And so just the entire experience just seems so profoundly spiritual and it's such a beautiful story of her accomplishing this great task because she had to get home to the ranch. You know, there were chickens and lambs being born, right? She had to get back home. Yeah. And so she finished it so fast. Everybody was just in shock. And But it's this beautiful work. And I thought, how awful to think that they even considered tearing it down and destroying it. Um, and that you said, I think you're right. I said this, that they're canvases that were plastered against the wall. So they'd be, you can actually lift them up. And so they're going to hire you know, international art experts to come in and tell them how best to do this. And I'm like, good. Like, I can't imagine, I don't understand why this wasn't happening in the first place. Like why <laughs> this woman is so important and her work is so beautiful and important. And my, why wouldn't you save it? So. Yeah. And that's, and I was in the same boat. I mean, we talked about this with, when I was with Jared a couple of weeks ago when the story dropped and that was our main argument. Like we understand change the temples fine. Like I think live sessions are a very cool part of our history because I think it ties us to, you know, Brother Joseph and things like that. I think it's sad to see him go, but okay, I get it. Fine. They, they need to go. We need to be able to get more people in the temple doing more work. We understand all of that. But the question that was never answered in the beginning was, why can't we just like at least save the artwork and put it somewhere? And I don't know. I mean, I can't believe. It's interesting to me because I don't like, did they not forecast the outcry from the people when this happened? I would have thought somebody <laughs> might have said. Because especially like because in the Manti Temple, Salt Lake is is of course the Salt Lake Temple, but the Manti Temple is very is very beloved by many, and especially those who are members of its district. It has this, right. this very unique, special place uh, in the hearts of the members there. Um, and like you know, even Deseret News went and interviewed people down there, and many of them were heartbroken. They said kind of like, "Yeah, we get it. Things need to change, but you know, that's our baby. Like that's our special, sweet building that's full of such interesting, unique history." Yeah. And so I'm glad that. This is one of these rare times where the church, of course, has not admitted that public outcry caused them to reconsider what they were doing. At the same time, I don't see what else it would be because they put out one press release that just said, unfortunately, we're just going to destroy everything. because That's what we have to do. And everyone, yeah. and there was such an outcry that came back and said, okay, well, 
we can get some art historians in here and maybe we can, and they didn't, they haven't guaranteed anything, by the way, that's the crucial thing. They are going to attempt yeah. to preserve the murals and, and remove, it is hard because this canvas is, is affixed to the plaster. So it's almost like a modern day fresco in a sense. Right. And it's going to be difficult to take it off, but they are going to attempt to do that and see what they can do so that future generations, whether it's in the Museum of Church History or something like that, uh, can see some of this wonderful work. I mean, the world room in the Manti Temple is just stunning as far as everything you see in it. And it's an amazing mural. And I'm just thrilled. I'm super glad that the church listened. They, I mean, I saw some great op-eds about this. There's even a, an email address you can actually uh, check out if you want to write the church directly and offer your thoughts on this. I kid you not. You can um, send an email to uh, JT Becerra, that's B E C E R R A, at churchofjesuschrist.org. And this is literally a chance to talk to Brother Becerra, who works in this capacity and you can just voice your concerns or how you're feeling about the Manti temple. I'm not, I'm not saying they're going to get back to you or anything will come of it, but, uh, there you go. There's an email address. You can drop a line. I've thought about doing it too. And just saying, thank you for trying to save what you can from this because the Manti temple is gorgeous and it's, yeah. it would be a tragedy to lose it all, even in the name of progress, but it would still be a, an absolute tragedy. If I can stay on temples for a moment, now, we'll probably have a whole podcast with our temple predictions, but obviously temple announcements, we assume, are coming in general conference. Um, why would they, they not be? I, yeah. They, they usually do. There was this time years ago when President Monsen came up and said, basically, we've been announcing a lot of temples and we're kind of getting backed up in terms of actually breaking ground on them and get them going. And he just basically said, we're not announcing any temples right now because we've got a backlog and we need to get through this and I'm not going to do more. I don't think President Nelson's cut from that same cloth. I think he's extremely enthusiastic about getting as many temples as is reasonable to get. And so I have every expectation anywhere between six and 10 temples will be announced this coming weekend. Uh, we hope you will go over to our website at thisweekendmormons.com and read the temple predictions because we've had a good track record, as many of you longtime listeners know. I'm not saying everything's a slam dunk here. It rarely is. But uh, last time around, when we talked about Kiribati and Sao Paulo and uh, Guatemala City too. We talk about all these things. So um, is there anywhere? Oh, yes. I'm going to make a huge prediction. Yes. It's going to be shocking. I'm saying that one's going to end up in Utah. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of out there. I know. But I wish that we had had this conversation like last, not last year, but the year before my mom actually worked in the temple department for the church. She was like an executive assistant. And they were, she told me they were some very stressed out people that this kind of, like you're saying, President Nelson's all in, it makes their lives very, very, very hard. And they are very stressed <laughs> yeah, trying to build these temples and keep up with the demand. Um, but yeah, I I don't know. That's so hard. Like I would have to like follow population trends and see where the church is growing kind of know, but I don't know. I, I have no, no clue. Now, at least for Utah, do you have any thoughts where one might go in Utah? Just since you've, you've been living, you've got one coming up right in your neck of the woods in Saratoga Springs. Oh, but, it's uh, so pretty. I can't wait for it to get done. It's going to be any years. I, any ideas being a, at least a Utah County resident where you think one might be lacking from things you observe? No, because I'm kind of just in my little area. I mean, we've got two in Provo, you know. That should, that should be enough for anybody. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, we've got them in, so I, I, we just, I was in St. George last weekend, my daughter, and uh, the temple is just so gorgeous against those red rocks, but they so sad going up and they've torn down a whole annex. Like it just the, looks wrong. And I'm like, 
we can't even come here for like two or three more years. So I'm like, so I don't know. They're going to have to build some temples in the meantime. But I don't know. I don't know where they would need one. I, I know for our area, and I can see why they've done it for us, because we had to go over to Mount Tempanogos. And you can't even, we couldn't oh. even get in. Like, you know, my daughter was so excited. Oh. And let's go do work for the dead. And I, one day we went there and we sat there, I think, probably for three hours until it was our turn. You know, and that's fantastic. It's great that there's such a need and so many people getting work done. But I don't know. We, we might need one in Utah County. So I'm going to say here somewhere. Let's put another one in here. I think we need and one. That's, and what you say there is a good reminder. I mean, I easily dunk on Utah because I think for a lot of us, especially outside of Utah, it's easy with all these Utah getting so many temples of late to be like, okay, come on. Like, seriously, yeah. like how many more temples? Especially when Linden was announced last time, I was like, Linden gets a temple? Like, I understand some of these more marquee locations, but it's like, you're just putting one up in Orem and now just Linden gets a temple now too. So I suppose next will be Pleasant Grove. We'll get one. Cedar Hills, Alpine, Highland. Basically every city in Utah County needs to have its own temple. I think that's the end of it. That's I, not I, like unrealistic. Like that's, it's, there would be a need there. Seriously, they would not, these temples would not be empty. There would not be a like, no, they wouldn't. Temple and, that's, and no one comes here. So. And that's the incredible thing is like, no, like you mentioned these three hour waits. I mean, that's unheard of. I've gone to temple, the DC temple when it's been busy and it's fine. And, and busy just means like, well, you don't really have trouble getting into your session. It's just like a really full session. And so yeah. it takes longer to get through certain processes along it. And, and it's like, well, that's fine, but it just means you're here a little bit longer, but never have I been where it's, I, I don't even know if I would wait it out. I mean, I get, you were there with your daughter and I'm sure you wanted to. Right. And that's what we did. Cause it was so important to her. It was her first yeah. time. And it was just like, yeah. we can't we can't walk away from this. We're just going to have to sit here until they call our name. And it took a very long time. I would have at least been like, can you give me one of those pagers restaurants have? Like, can I just get leave and, you know, go get right? something to eat maybe. And then you can buzz yeah. me. Here, when here's it's my <laughs> cell phone number. Give me a call to send me a text when you're ready. They should have yeah, virtual nice. cues. Yeah. Well, we'll see what happens this weekend with the temples. I've long, I've been thinking one, maybe even in like Spanish fork might actually make sense at this point. Cause there's so much growth down there in the Southern part of the County, but I don't know who knows. We'll see if, if not there, well, my biggest guess actually for Utah, since you're the Utah, and I won't give them all away. I think Cache Valley is ripe for a, a second temple because they are slammed at the Logan Temple all the time. I believe it, yeah. And I could see them doing another temple in Northern Cache Valley, maybe even on the Idaho side. I don't know exactly where it would be. And uh, once they build that, then they would close the Logan Temple for a much needed restoration because of the four pioneer temples, it is the saddest on the inside. If a temple can be sad, it's not actually sad, but it's the saddest of the four. It looks like an old stake center. It's, it's an interesting place. So I'm excited. We'll see what happens. Temples are fun. I'm stoked. I keep hoping they'll put one in Scotland because I used to live there, but who knows if it'll happen or not. We'll see. We just need some Scott people to join the church. They have joined the church, right? Many of the, if they had not, you know, come to Zion, there'd be many members in Scotland. They're just That's true. Be anyone- there just wouldn't be anyone in Utah, but there'd be many members in Europe. Um, if they had it like, man, I'm all for the gathering. It was important back then, obviously. But it's funny to think how Europe would be if they had not done that, because there were a lot of members coming from many of these countries. I mean, Iceland had a ton of Latter-day Saints, but they all left. And so today there's just two branches in the whole country. Yeah. Um, but there's a ton of people of Icelandic descent in parts of Utah because of this. And uh it's good. I don't think the Saints would have survived had it not been for all the uh, immigrants who came along the way, of course, but you can't help but wonder. Absolutely. Yeah. 
All right. What else you got? Don't be shy. All right. So we have an article about fair Mormon is dropping Mormon from their names and they're going to stop apparently bickering in posts, <laughs> which let's <laughs> be love fair. Um, I, so they changed, they're changing it to fair Latter-day Saints.org and fair Mormon is actually a group that I followed for a very long time. Um, the name is actually talking about being apologetics and for those your listeners who don't know, an apologetic is someone who um, it's reasoned arguments or writings for justifying something typically religious or a theory. So when you're an apologist, you're writing kind of in defense of a religious theory. People think it means you're apologizing for the church. You're not apologizing for the church. That's not what it means. But that's just a term that's used for religious scholars. So they had that in their name and nobody knew what it meant. And so they're changing what the name means to, you know, fair enough to answer faithful answers and form response. So what I like about them is I am really big on scholarship for their, you know, ancient scripture. And they're, they're the group that's kind of spearheading that right now. Um, and it's good because as I had mentioned before with the crazy Ohio people, and yes, if you're listening, you believe that you are a crazy person. Um, they get in here and what's happening is, you know, like. For She's referring to the Great Lakes theory, by the way, everyone. That's no, not Great Lakes, Heartland theory. No. Great Lakes is different. The Heartland theory. The, Heartland theory. the, guy, the guy who made the Heartland theory joined the Green, Great Lakes theory, but realized he could make more money on his own. So he moved it from New York to Ohio so he could have his own theory that would make him a lot of money. He's made hundreds of thousands of dollars. So, I mean, I guess good for him. I don't know. But the problem is people don't look at this stuff. And I was a history major at BYU. So I know how to look at scholarship. I know how it's supposed to be peer reviewed and what's supposed to happen with it. And you just have people making up the dumbest stuff and finding, creating this cult-like following. And what was happening is like Fair Mormon would post articles online about, you know, these really cool things. And these Heartlanders were coming in and like attacking them, like, posting the craziest things like, you know, just attacking their faith and attacking their homes. And I, it was bad. So Fair Mormon, I think kind of felt defensive and like they had to protect themselves and, you know, it, their, their scholarships being called into question, their academia is being called into question. And so I think they tried to defend themselves against the crazy people who were attacking them. Cause again, yeah. that's what you are. If you believe this theory, you can come at me cause we will fight about it. But um, <laughs> so I think, I think they were trying to, I understand what they were doing and they're now saying going forward, they're going to try to basically not engage the crazy people um, that they will come back to a scholarship point of view. And, you know, and it, it's such an important thing. Like it's, I actually have contributed money to them and some of their other organizations, like, uh, or I guess brother organizations like Book of Mormon Central, because I think it's so important. And for me with the Book of Mormon, I just think if you know the culture and you study it and you understand it, the spiritual meaning is so much deeper. And and many people seem to know this, but Lucy Max Smith talked about before Joseph was ever allowed to translate, all of the Book of Mormon prophets came and visited him. And what they came to him and talked to him about was completely all secular, cultural stuff. This is what we wore. This is how we, you know, what we ate. This is where we lived. This is how we talked to each other. Because... Joseph had to know the secular. He had to have that basic understanding to go in and really understand the spiritual. And so, yeah. and I think it's fantastic and we should focus on the spiritual of the Book of Mormon. But at the same time, I'm like, you are missing these layers and layers and layers of spiritual significance because you don't understand what else is going on. And then you have crazy people telling you it's someplace different when it's not. 
I'm not gonna be back on the show anymore. Well, no, no, you're good. Why? See, it's interesting you talked about that story. Why don't we like learn that that particular story? Do you think in our Sunday school lessons? You know, we bother to talk about all the, all the classic ones we hear about the restoration of the priesthood, visitations from other angels, but. That's, no one talks about the Book of Mormon prophets visiting Joseph Smith, and in that fact, was from that was from a, a gospel doctrine book that I I taught years ago. It was in there as a quote. It was, it was in a primary manual too. So I mean, it has been taught, but I don't know if people just kind of gloss over it or they just think it doesn't matter. But whenever I'm I'm asked to teach Book of Mormon, I've been a gospel doctrine teacher a few times. That's always the first quote, the first class I share. I always read that quote from Lucy Mack Smith, and. This is why it's important. And I'm going to teach you things that are cultural as we talk about the spiritual significance. Um, but now, thanks to the crazy people, we can't do that anymore because we're going to have people listening going, oh, no, that's not what it took place in Ohio. And they, sorry, it bothers me. But that's why we can't have it nice didn't things. It took place in Ohio, everyone. Because people go out and do crazy it stuff. Took place, it took place in you know Ontario, Canada. And we all know this. We, we all, I'm just kidding. I just like to, I, I love how passionate you are about uh, Book of Mormon origin competing theories. I love it. I love it's, I think it's super interesting and I love people who like, you get revved up about it and there's nothing wrong with that. I basically. do. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, listeners. I do. This is, I have, I have a few soapboxes and I think it's Book of Mormon origins and home births. That's the one that I will get raged up about. So. <laughs> Please tell us about home births. What, oh. what is it? <laughs> no, I, Everyone should have a doula. I, no, I, you have a doula. You have a midwife. You have a shaman and a voodoo doctor in the hospital. You have whatever you want, whatever experience you feel like you need to have to have a child, but do it in a hospital. They can give you whatever experience you want to have. I do not understand women. These women who are like, for thousands of years, women have been having babies at home. And I'm like, for thousands of years, women and babies have been dying. Like I showed my class, I was teaching about Emma Smith and I showed this chart because you know, how many babies did Emma have die? Like it just was so traumatic for her and so heartbreaking yeah, yeah. for her. And I showed them this chart and there was this chart where mother and infant deaths are just astronomically high. And all of a sudden it drops, like basement drops and it goes low the whole rest of the way. And it's in the 1930s. And I said, and you know what happened in the 1930s? Women started having their babies in hospitals. Like so many things. I do not have a sister or a sister-in-law who have not had at least one major complication with a pregnancy and a birth. So it, they're all healthy and young. It happens. And I, I remember reading about this home birth advocate in Australia where she started bleeding out and on the way to the hospital died. And they said, had she been in a hospital, she would have lived and left her husband with five children at the age of seven. You know, like it's just so horrific to me. So that's, yeah, I said, that's, that is a soapbox for me where it's just this very preventable thing. And like my sister and I, we talked about our doctor said, what's your birth plan? I said, my birth plan is me and the baby live. That's my birth plan. We both walk out of this, you know, and the doctor's always kind of taken aback. And I'm like, everything else to me, it's just kind of selfish bribery. You know, it's just stuff to make you feel better you're putting lives at danger. You're putting lives at risk. It's like someone said, if you were walking into a, like a, an auditorium that was dark and there's a guy with a gun and he's going to shoot, you know, maybe it's going to hit you and maybe it's not, maybe the odds are it's not going to hit you, but on the off chance that that bullet strikes you, don't you want the hospital to be right next door? Like, you know, like, yes. So I, it is such a hard thing to do. And, and women feel so justified about it. They get very upset with me when I say this stuff, but yeah, that's one of my soapboxes is, oh my gosh. Have your baby in a hospital. Whatever experience you want to have, 
go have it. Just do it in a hospital. I think sometimes we forget that God has blessed us with miracles in many ways, right? Like we like, yeah. When especially when it comes to medicine, like I, I, it's so easy to think about. You know, a long time ago, you see people ask like, "Where are all the miracles? Why? Like, I want God to give me a miraculous birth in my home." That's what women did a long time ago. It's like, yeah, but God blessed us with ingenuity and evolution and to develop and medicine as people to make this better than it was before. And, and yeah, so like what I was getting out there, it's the same thing. Like we say, why don't I see miracles anymore? Like with people with healings and things like we have in the story in the days of old in the church. It's like, yeah, well, they had no vaccines back then either. Like part of the miracles we have are these great blessings we have today with modern medicine. And we're very fortunate. You and I, Soraya, we live in the United States. We have access to perfectly good health care despite, you know, just, you know, the system's not perfect, of course, that has issues and there's things we could all want to do better. But there are many of our fellow brothers and sisters in the world who don't have access to such good things. And if you look at mortality rates, even today in developing nations that don't have access to good health care uh, for women and their children, those rates are typically higher and because they don't have yeah. it. So why would we? I'm with you. I mean, obviously, I, I'm the worst person to talk about this because I'm basically mansplaining at this point. And, you know, it's not my place, but. Well, it's my place. And I say having them at home is dumb. So. But I can say something as a concerned husband who's, I mean, when you watch your wife go through what she has to go through to bring children into the world, you absolutely sit back and you're just like, oh my gosh, like, oh, like what yeah. can I do? And you're, and you're terrified. You're scared. I, every time we've had kids, I'm scared for my wife. I'm scared. We've, I'm scared for her well-being. Of course, like no matter what, no matter how quote unquote routine it might be. And I'm super thankful we are in a hospital and not uh, another setting just because I want to be in a tub. I don't, I don't want to be in a tub. I don't want to be in a tub with all. That's, who needs that? That's they have no, tubs no, in hospitals. Put me in my little paper zip up suit, and that's fine. That's all. <laughs> it's all at the hospital. <laughs> oh, I like it. I like it. Um, here's what I'm going to throw at you. Uh, this is less directly LDS, but since it's kind of commemorative of the Latter Day Saint history of Utah, so apparently there's a bill going around in the state of Utah to create a commemorative license plate celebrating 175 years since the pioneers arrived. That's cool. Why would you not want to commemorate that? Why not? I think that's great. Um, though I do think when we're like 150, 175, like at which point does the milestone become yeah, one where you're just, grabbing, you're, you're just grabbing a mile? It's been yeah. 215 years. Um, yeah. So this is an interesting plate and I don't want to rag on it exactly. Though from a design perspective, I find it interesting. It is. It has Block, pretty blocky letters, like something you would make in Microsoft Word. And it says, let's say Utah. And then it says, this is the place on the bottom. But the image is of the underside of a wagon or a carriage. You know, the pioneers would have taken across the plains. And you see the big spokes of the giant wooden wheels. Um, there were some who commented that the reason it's like this is because basically the plate is where it would be if it were actually on the wagon it, itself. Like that's the location of it, which I think is fine. But I still, I admittedly find this to be an interesting design choice for a commemorative license plate. Hey, let's have a picture of the underside of a wagon. Yeah. Th- like, those are my sense. This is where you are we, the Utah. We had to tie Timmy up and drag him on a rope behind. This is the view he had, you know, from under the, ca- I don't, I don't understand it. Like I, I saw that and I was like, what? I, I get it that you said it's supposed to be where the license plate would go, but that's my guess anyway. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the guess. I don't know. I would have probably, if it were me, I probably would have made the bottom part be like, you know, the part of the covered wagon and have the top be white, right? Utah across the white top of it. And then 
put it on the back of the wagon. I wouldn't have put it under the wagon where the poop and everything went. I mean, I, I don't know what the point of this was. Or even so. could you just have like a, a nice, beautiful tableau of showing wagons coming through Immigration Canyon, entering the valley, just a nice pastoral image to commemorate this? I think that's perfectly valid. Why not do that? that Why sense. not have an image an image of, of I don't know, Brigham Young and everyone on top of Ensign Peak pointing down at the valley? Of course, that would be people probably get mad because that's very male centric, I guess. But I don't know. I feel like there's more we can do than a, I, I don't live in Utah. So it's like, like I have skin in the game. I live in a Virginia plates are very boring. You know, we don't do anything cool in Virginia. The best thing you can do is get a picture of, with a cardinal that has a, a holly bush. It's holding. Yay. Virginia, the old dominion. Yeah. I think we have, uh, my husband's got arches, the Zion arches and I have a BYU one. So it is fun to dig into to vanity, not even just vanity plates, if you have the custom naming, but even just like the commemorative plates you can get in your state. If you haven't done this, listeners, I think I'm sure it varies by state, but like even here in Virginia, there's at least 40 different types of plates I could get in Virginia that are for all sorts of just rando stuff that you would never, ever expect, which I think just it cracks me up. I love that this is even available. Like, do I really need plates that say like I'm part of the Fisherman's Guild? I, I, it's great. Why not? Utah's a great place, Soraya. What else is happening in Utah right now? Well, anything anything interesting? I, I saw this the article about the church not requiring missionaries to get vaccinated. Oh, boy. And going back to maybe my soapbox moment, you know, of hospitals, I you find this stuff out on Facebook. There is a woman who has started an anti-vaccination mo- movement in the church. And she has articles and lists, you know, Here's all the emails of people you need to contact. And I think she was morally outraged because the friend magazine was talking about ways that kids can do things like how to be confident and for be brave. It was a child getting a vaccination, getting a shot. And she is so morally outraged by this. And I'm like, this is why we can't have nice stuff too. Like people doing stuff like this. And I'm like, when they pray in general conference for a vaccination to end the pandemic, I mean, except for you and your family, I don't get it. I don't, I don't understand this mentality. Like vaccines are good. Now I will tell you, I am someone who I spaced out my vaccines for my kids that I did not get them. I thought I can't see why an infant needs to have a a shot in a hospital. Like it just didn't make sense to me, but my children have all those vaccines. I I spaced them out a little bit more than, you know, so I, I maybe under supposed to understand more where this woman's coming from, but I thought this is insane. Like the church should vaccinate people and encourage people to get vaccinated. Like, this is why we're not all dying of smallpox and polio. You know, like, again, humans lived fine for thousands of years. They died horrible deaths from horrific diseases. And you have no idea how bad those diseases are. And my mom talks about how she remembers her mom lining them up to get the first polio vaccine because they knew how awful and horrific polio was to get and how it wrecked your life. And I think we forget. I think it's the Joseph Smith said the greatest sin of our day would be ingratitude. And I think this is ingratitude to me, like looking at this stuff and thinking that you're somehow above it or better than it. And it doesn't apply to you because you don't know what you're missing. You don't know how awful, awful these things are because you've lived a very sheltered life where it hasn't been an issue for you. Yeah, and it's funny because, I mean, the church, the, the church as it often <laughs> does, there's, there's little carve outs in the agency. There always are. But it said right here in the statement from January when the first presidency got their vaccines and they put out a press release and showed pictures of, of them getting the jabs. 
But it said, quote, as appropriate opportunities become available, the church urges its members, employees, and missionaries to be good global citizens and help quell the pandemic by safeguarding themselves and others through immunization. But then it does say, next sentence, individuals are responsible to make their own decisions about vaccination. And then it says, you know, consult medical professionals and stuff. But they're clearly encouraging us to do this unless we have like a good reason not to. And what's interesting about saying about right here. Yeah. I mean, people have concerns. Of course, there are people who have adverse reactions. People have medical conditions where they can't get certain vaccines, right? Of course. And that's normal. That's okay. Like we get that. But obviously if you're, don't just think there's some weird spook stuff going on and that president Nelson is like shilling for big pharma or some odd thing like that, where it's, it's a vaccine. It's a blessing. It's a, I mean, the church says this clearly, like we have fasted and prayed for this. What I think Uh is funny is this, this very statement says the church is urging its members, the church's own employees and the missionaries to be good citizens and get the vaccine, which brings us up to last week when it turns out the church though is not requiring missionaries it says in Utah specifically, but it's right. not requiring missionaries in Utah to be vaccinated. It does encourage its members to follow the Lord's uh, the prophet's example with being vaccinated, but there is no requirement. I find that very, very interesting because I recall when I served a mission, and I've actually learned a lot about this this week because of this um, because of this this story. Uh, it's, it's caused me to dig up, dig into some things and remember what the requirements were for going on a mission. But yeah, I had to get vaccinated to go on my mission. Like I couldn't go if I didn't get vaccinated. I believe the rule is like you cannot serve outside of your home country if you refuse vaccines is what I recall. And I served abroad. I served in Spain. So of course I had to get vaccinated for all kinds of stuff and all the hepatitis stuff you have to get when you get in Europe. And that was my choice. But that was what was laid out before me. Like, here's your mission call. In order to do this, you need to have your, your vaccinations. And I was like, that's, that's expected and fine. That's been a part of my life. And I think it's very interesting. They're not requiring them of missionaries, especially when they are emissaries of the church. And well, it could still be a personal choice, but missionaries are interfacing with people all the time. Um, It's, it's very interesting to me. I admit I'm quite perplexed about this when you pretty much make vaccinations more or less the norm for missionaries in the first place with that caveat, of course, you can serve presumably in your own home country if you refuse vaccines, but I don't know. I just feel like wouldn't you want your missionaries to be the ones helping set an example within the the rational parameters we were discussing, you know, if you have medical conditions or this or that, but I, uh, I just find this to be, I find it very odd. I'm not going to lie. I just think it's so, so strange that they are just not saying missionaries get a vaccine. This is the requirement. If you don't like it, well, then we can talk about what else you can do. But this is what we need to do going forward. And for anyone coming to the field right now, I would hope they would say, mm-hmm. please try to get a COVID vaccine before you enter the field. The one obvious thing to remember in all of that, though, is unlike vaccines for diphtheria and polo, polio and whatever else, the COVID vaccine is, of course, not as widely available and it's restricted access at this stage in the game. So it would be unfair to tell any missionary like you have to be vaccinated now or to go in the field. And I don't think the church wants right. to sit around and wait for six months and not issue any mission calls in the, you know, in the meantime. Um, right. I don't know. So I think it's, I just think it's, I, but I do think it's odd. I would think they would just say like, yeah, you need to get vaccinated, but we can talk about it if you have an issue with it, but they're not. I agree with you. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you. Well then good. Um, well, let's see where are we at here. I'm going to jack one of your stories and stay back in Utah. I, I imagine you have thoughts on this. So Utah is flirting with a bill that would block pornography on phones sold within the state of Utah. Which, so that's, let's be clear. That's what it would do. Um, 
I I think Soraya, I want to assume you and I can both agree. Porn is bad. I think porn we can both bad. say that. It's destructive. Um, yes. And we don't love it. I do think there are some major First Amendment issues with a plan like this, regardless. Like I, you know, I don't believe in pornography, but I also personally don't believe you can in any way I believe trying to criminalize it would be a restriction on free speech, unfortunately. I think we have to combat it in other ways. Uh, I imagine this is to try to protect children from, you know, inadvertently stumbling upon pornographic material, which could happen because they are on their phones. They are not, it's not, right. it's one thing to have a, have a, you know, all the, uh, the blockers and the things that parents have always have put on their PCs and this and that for years. They want to help the kids. I get that. But I also think it's, I don't know. I don't think it stands up, would stand up in court personally. Cause how could yeah. you just like, I think you're right. I think yeah. I keep going back to that, that Joseph Smith quote of the, you know, I teach them correct principles and they govern themselves that, you know, our job is not to control everyone. Our job is not to say, I'm going to force you to be good. I'm going to force you to do what's right. Like I, I have an issue with it in that aspect, but also, like you said, I think it's a slippery slope. Cause you know, I told my husband about it. He's like, well, good. I'm like, well, what happens when the anti-vaccine lady gets in charge and she says, I'm going to make this happen now, you know, that because she's the one in power and she's the one, you know, that kind of stuff happens where it's just a slippery slope that we get on that we say, okay, well, this one's okay. And what happens with the next step and the next step and the next step? Like you may be okay with this one, but you're not going to be okay when it's, you know, we don't want any religious paraphernalia on phones. We feel like that's bad. And so, you know, we're going to outlaw any kind of, you know, and that's obviously extreme, but I thought this is where this stuff starts. We start in the slope and I, I understand the principle behind it, but I feel like if that's what you want to accomplish, then hire someone to make an app that maybe someone who's not tech savvy can download on their kid's phone then to make sure that they don't have access to it. Let's put our money there where you give us a tool to, comp, to you know combat it and fight it. And those exist than- anyway. I mean, yeah, there's, there's things you can do. And folks, if you really want to get into it, especially if you're at home, yeah, right. you can get apps. Um, and the hard thing here is, of course, defining pornography. Then you're relying on the government to define what is pornography. And like the, the you know, the old adage is always said, like you know, you know it when you see it. I get it, but it really would mean you'd have to sit there as a state and codify what is the definition of porn, which gets into a whole other complicated area, of course. Right. Um, but there's a lot you can do as parents, everybody. Whether you're looking for apps that regulate things, uh, if you can get a little bit savvy with your home network, at least when your kid is at home. Um, you can very easily restrict access to certain things on your network if you're even remotely savvy. Even easier if you use things like Google Wi-Fi or stuff like that. You can very easily just blacklist certain search terms and this and that. Um, oddly enough, when I was at my brother-in-law's house, I was trying to look for like car listings, and he has that. He's, he has that blocked for some reason. I can't look up like auto trader stuff at his house, and I don't know why. And it's very his kid has teenage daughters. I don't know what they're looking for, but uh, yeah, you can check that out, everybody, and find a better way to do this. The other funny thing about this is this law would not even take effect unless five other states pass a similar bill. I don't know why they tied themselves to five of their states in that sense. I don't understand. I think it's just to show a united front, I would guess, but or I don't know. Not crazy. Don't, don't think we're crazy. Like maybe it's a, if everybody else is doing it, it's okay if we're doing it. I don't know. I guess they're just going to like, come on, Idaho and Arizona. I know you don't get this over the line, Like, come on, people in but then people in Scottsdale are going to be like, what you talking about? This is never going to happen. Come on. We're Scottsdale. You, That's right. Come on. Come on, people. We have art galleries. All righty. I think we're pretty good on uh, other stories. I don't need to talk about many of those this weekend. We're, we're basically at time, so that's fine. Do you have anything you're looking forward to at General Conference? Anything you th- you are 
Is there any counsel you're hoping to receive, Soraya? Anything that's jumping out at you for the weekend? Gosh, I think anything I would say would actually be really personal. So that's that's fair. I mean, that's okay, but yeah. No, um, divulge everything to all of us. Yeah, right tell now. us everything, all your things. But yeah, I mean, there's specific things that I'm looking for that I hope to get answers to, and uh, it'll be interesting to see kind of what goes forward. Like you know, talking about that that survey for the young young people in the church. I'm like, are they going to change general conference going forward? Are they going to change the format? Are they going to change? You know, yeah. it, it'll be interesting to see what happens. And I thought it's a lot. You know, my husband and I were talking about this the other day. I'm like. In Joseph Smith's time, like there was nothing else kind of going on. There were no other, I mean, life was not, you could devote this kind of time to stuff. Like they would say, I've read these things where Joseph would just talk for like three or four hours. And I'm like, well, yeah, it's yeah. Joseph Smith. Like, how could you not be utterly fascinated by everything he says? And not that I'm like knocking on President Nelson or anything, but, you know, I I don't know. I think times have changed and I, it would be interesting to see with that we've changed church so dramatically, you know, especially from like even my mom's time where, you know, the hours and days that they would spend going to church. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see if they kind of altered them. Cause I thought this generation coming up, they have short attention spans. Like they, it is very hard for my, my youngest kids, especially to sit and watch eight hours of conference, you know? So it'll be interesting to see if they kind of change that going forward. Yeah. I'm with you too. I don't know. And then they're hinting at those sorts of changes. It'll be fun. And I'm hoping for some, I'm always hoping for good counsel. I'm curious what the makeup of it will be this time. I mean, a year ago when they, when they did conference, it was unfortunate because everything was supposed to be this big commemoration of the first vision and all that. And most of that went out the window, right? You could tell, you could tell, you could tell they were sort of trying to kind of, kind of stitch together a conference that sort of recognized COVID, but there weren't many talks really about the pandemic at that time. And we were very, we were like three weeks in really at that point in earnest at that point. Um, but you could tell they also had to throw out a lot of what was supposed to be this much bigger celebration about the first vision. And that was, so that was unfortunate. And then six months later, the last conference was, there was a lot about pandemic and about hope and along those lines. And I'm, so I'm curious if what we'll see any overarching themes this time, if it still leans on the, on finding hope and despair during the pandemic, if we'll look at the hope for the future, since vaccines are rolling out, if it'll be more of that tenor, or if because of that, there'll be less pandemic talk in general. And we might just be talking about more, more quote unquote, typical, you know, conference remarks That's true. Uh, that we always get. It'll, it'll be interesting to see. I don't know. I don't know, I but I'm some, sure we'll be there. I hope somebody says, go get a vaccine. I wish they would, but I don't think they will. And that's the, that's what I'm hoping I for. Think, I think it'll be the same thing where someone might say it during a talk and be like, and the wonderful blessing of vaccines, but they'll never quite go as far as saying like, brothers and sisters, seriously do this. Like, come on. Um, they always just kind of like nudge it all that that direction and try to say, you see what we're doing here? President Nelson gets a vaccine. Yeah. They're good. Be, follow the prophet, right? Yep. But they never just come out and spell it out directly. And that's just that's just how we do things, I guess. I don't know. That's fine. Anywho, folks, uh, if you want to pre-order the seat filler, which is out at the end of next month, you can, of course, go to Amazon.com and do that. We'll put a link with this episode uh, over at thisweekendmormons.com that you can click on and just go do that. It's a fun read. I enjoyed it quite a bit. I love that they send this over to me and I was able to check it out and uh, and enjoy myself reading through it. So please check that out. Go to our website, click on the link and uh, pre-order the book. I think the pre-order price is completely equitable. I believe it's like $4.99 for the Kindle version of it on pre-order if I'm, not, if I'm looking at the website right now. And it also works if you have Kindle Unlimited and all that kind of good stuff. So we'll be back with you all next week. 
Uh, after a conference, normally we do our conference recap podcast the evening of when it all concludes, but because it's Easter itself, we thought it might be a little bit goofy to get everyone together, especially our friends on Mountain Time and say like, hey, like 6.30 or 7, why don't you ignore your family and come to a podcast? Uh, we, we thought that wouldn't play too well. So look out for it on uh, Monday night next week uh, around 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern. Uh, we hope we'll have the live stream set up. And I believe Soraya is going to be joining us after our yeah. last uh, after yeah. our last check-in. So you'll have a number of your twin favorites all getting together where we're just going to hash out conference, talk about our favorite talks, what resonated, you know, what we what meant something to us. It's going to be good. And we hope you'll all good. be there for it. And we all also hope, please uh, go to thisweekinmormons.com and visit us there and follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and all that. You can also follow Soraya on Instagram, which I think you have to do now, Soraya Wilson 411 on Instagram. I'm going to embed this Adam and Driver exchange on our website. I think this, I think the people need this. You're also reasonably active on Twitter. And I think there you're just at Soraya Wilson. If I'm yeah, not. just at Soraya Wilson. So. Good time. Well, uh, thanks, Ryan. It's good to have you again this week to talk about all the good stuff that's going on in the Mormon world. Appreciate you being here. All right. Thanks for having me. Uh, It's always a pleasure. Everyone, we hope you have a great week. And until we meet again, thank you for listening to This Week in Mormons. We'll talk to you soon. Be well, be holy, and be happy.